Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Greetings and welcome to another edition with The Way with Anoa. It is Monday, January 14th. I cannot believe we're already two weeks into January. Today, um, an illegitimate governor was installed here in Georgia. We have four years to make sure that he is one and done. Um, We also have um, an ongoing conversation, I mean, about representation, about diversity in the media, um, and about holding elected officials accountable, right? Um, And this notion that somehow it is the predominantly white, quote unquote, predominantly white Bernie progressives um, who are trying to clear the field for Bernie Sanders. Uh, It is fascinating to find the objections that are raised to people's actual records and not even a distortion of the records, their actual records being um, claimed as a tax, you know. Like, we are going into another election cycle in terms of 2020. I always caution folks not to just use 2019 as a preparation stage prepping area for 2020. We have plenty of things going on right now in 2019 and a lot of elections that need our uh, attention at the local level and as well as some statewide elections, notably in Kentucky. Um, But, you know, you have folks like Tom Watson and others claiming that whether it's Beto's record or now Kamala Harris or people challenging Warren, that somehow this is a part of a conspiracy by the Bernie-verse to clear the pathway for Bernie Sanders. And, you know, most of you who listen to me and follow me, of course, have, you know, first gotten to know me through my commentary and advocacy back in the 2015-2016 election cycle. However, even during that time when I was someone that was championing, you know, Bernie's policies and campaign um, in the primary, that that we, myself and Benjamin Dixon, who I started, you know, with Progressive Army doing commentary under, like we always called Bernie on his BS consistently since that time. Um, and, and, you know, not saying that there is a lot of BS with Bernie, but there are points for critique. There are points for criticism just like with any other candidate who is running. And, you know, right now folks are taking an issue with people bringing up Kamala Harris's record as attorney general, which she served up into two years ago, right? She's she's a new North Senator, um, you know, and these are issues that her campaign is going, are going to have to, to address, particularly being positioned as like this progressive champion um, she's referred to herself as a progressive, of having been a progressive prosecutor. And her definition of progressive prosecutor, we actually have a movement space right now, right? We actually have organizations, we actually have work that is looking at what does it mean to advocate for more progressive policies within prosecutorial work, right? And what does it mean to actually um, elect people who are more progressive than their predecessors have been? And unfortunately, there are aspects of Kamala Harris's record that don't comport with this national conversation we've been having about progressive prosecutors. And that is something that she has to figure out how to reconcile 
as she's moving through this presidential, you know, nominee process. That is not anyone attacking her or trying to remove the field or clear the field or whatever. That's like that's just base that's just basic stuff. And this 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 inability with establishment Democrats in particular to to be, you know, uh, to even understand people would try to hold elected officials accountable for the things that they've done. I mean, that's like if Joe Biden jumps in, I mean, we got we got decades. We got like what, 30, 40 years of stuff um back to his anti uh segregation integration push, the crime bill, Anita Hill, like so much, right? Like this isn't about attacks. This is about look, this is what you've done. You want this highest office in the land, well you won't have to come correct and you won't be held accountable. I mean, that's just what it is. And folks, when I ch- every time I challenge Bernie, which I have been doing consistently since the general election in 2016, um, at numerous points, I, you know, there are, there are folks who I respect a lot who are very much on his team, and I love them dearly. One of my my dearest friends, Kat Bresler, has been featured in the Organized for Bernie, like live streams and stuff like that. I, I mean, if, it, if, if, if I didn't have such strong convictions, Kat would have had me on board weeks ago, you know, but my thing is, you know, in terms of inside outside strategies, I believe that we need to have clear critique from people who are not, you know, just inside. I think once you give way and go inside your ability to leverage opportunity, power, and then any type of concessions from candidates at times can, can diminish. Now, am I saying that I won't support burning in a year? I don't know what's going to happen a year. Well, am I saying I'm going to support like Warren or anyone else? I have no clue what's going to actually happen by the time we actually get to the 2020 cycle, like the actual year 2020. Who knows? More than half these people might even drop out before even the first debate even happens. But we actually need to have a national conversation. We actually need to engage people. We actually need to show people that representatives, that senators, that attorney generals, that those people who are running for these offices can be held accountable for the records that they have. We have a massive, we have a massive organizing effort nationwide in terms of prison abolition, in terms of ending cash bail and all these other, you know, aspects of the criminal injustice system. And, you know, Kamala Harris's record as AG is absolutely relevant to wanting to be president. It's absolutely relevant to to be, she, I mean, she's a part of a town hall coming up with the NAACP about like civil rights and, 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 and other things. And so it's absolutely relevant to challenge her. If Eric Holder were to run, it'd be absolutely relevant to bring up the fact that surveillance on groups like Black Lives Matter and the concept of Black identity extremists have existed, not simply since Trump, but even under, you know, the two black attorney generals that we had under President Obama. So these are things that actually need to be addressed. People are old, old, old that much if you want our votes. It is, it is not about, you know, just being someone's minions online. Like these are the sectors, these are the spaces where we are driving political conversations and narratives. And that actually has to be flushed out and dealt with. Now, if folks like Tom Watson want to repeat a 2016 and trying to create these rosy, perfect pictures, people, human beings are flawed and public officials, elected officials are even more so. And they have to address their own records. Say Julian Castro, you know, I was, I wasn't like, oh my God, you know, he says state, state violence. I was surprised that that language was used in his speech. I haven't gotten a chance to watch the whole thing, 
but other people rightfully criticize and critique not just the language, but some of the policies. But there are things to look at and take hold. And we are so early in all of this that the opportunity to not only shape platforms, but get on the record concessions and, and get people to acquiesce to positions is there's so much time for so much of this stuff. So however y'all are moving strategically, if you are people who believe in the electoral process and you're going to vote Democrat and vote for someone in the presidential cycle, think about how you can strategically engage, organize, and move between now and whenever those first debates hit, going on to when the first primaries hit, right? Like, we'll need to worry about wasting our time trying to draft people to run and getting petitions and all the other stuff. That's a waste of time and paper. What we need to be doing is getting out here and organizing in our communities around issues to start building and engaging. Do you live in a state that has really crazy rules and regulations around policies and procedures around voting? Have you been going to the meetings with your um, with your board of elections? You know what I'm saying? Do you, do you even know how your board of elections supervisors and other, other people in leadership are even appointed or selected for those roles? There's a lot that we need to be doing to make sure that we have free, clear and uh, in, in elections that, that, that actually <laughs> election integrity, right? Like we need to make sure election integrity is actually protected when we're looking at not just 2020 presidential cycle, but these 2019 municipal elections. If you're trying to build power electorally and actually have uh, uh, be able to move the needle where you are in terms of the presidential election cycle or congressional cycles happening in 2020, you need to be building right now on the ground. What are the municipal elections happening in your area? What is happening legislatively stateside? Uh, folks are coming back in session today in Georgia. We just session just started today. What are you doing locally? What is happening locally? Who can you plug into? If you're an organization like a DSA or whatever, what is your strategy? What is your strategic vision? That is a process that people need to be engaging in now. It is great to tweet and post and criticize and critique. We need that too. But how are you building the alternative to what you see happening? Because even if there is no candidate that is for you, that you want to get behind, you absolutely can help engage, build people up, and push and drive the conversation at least where you are. There are major cities having uh, elections this year. There are smaller municipalities, countywide elections. I mean, dig deep because from the work I was doing, uh, whether it was helping to elect progressive um, progressive DAs and prosecuting attorneys, uh, uh, Wesley Bell and Rachel Rollins, whether it was that, whether it was looking at city council folks, people running for mayor, county commissioner, I mean, all types of races, county record, all types of races up and down the ballot. These are things that are directly impacting our daily lives and we can't lose sight of them. So, um, yeah, like that, there's just so much going on right now, but we got to keep, we got to start visioning and being strategic and looking at the long game. Because even if your favorite candidate for president does make it to the nominee, even if Trump is defeated, what is the long-term vision? Because it's going to take a lot more to turn this country around than just one election cycle. Like these past wins in Congress and the midterm cycle were great. We made such gains down here in the South, but it's going to take way more than this one push, this one cycle to break through the systemic barriers that have been holding us back for decades, for generations. It's going to take so much more. And for folks who are outside, like, you know, electoral politics or third party politics or whatever the case may be, same thing applies in terms of strategic visioning, local organizing and building and planning. Like, how do you continue to make the case? How do you continue to build and grow and help people have 
a space that they can come into, but also what does it look like to have quote unquote off cycle electoral building? Really hate the term off cycle quoting, you know, y'all, I love quoting Nina Turner on this. There is no off cycle. We're always on. But what does it look like to build when you're not in a voting cycle? What does it look like, like, like in that immediate like few months? What does it look like to have that organizing effort? Are you are you directly challenging your city council and county commissioners on particular issues? Are you at school board participating in whatever your local governance structure is? Right. Like these are things they're not they're not as sexy as as big election cycles, but they're absolutely necessary to what our governance is. So that's my little take on all that for right now. But I am switching over to the conversation I just had with Miss Wendy Muse. Wendy and I chopped it up about a bunch of things, continuing the conversation about representation has been ongoing. Um, and Wendy also check out the the comment, the, the description of this episode. Wendy also um, shares a couple of articles for folks to check out for more information. There's a recent piece up on Verso's website that was that's really good. Um, and, and there's just a conversation that we need to continue having and building. And I just appreciate Wendy for taking time out on her Sunday afternoon, to, to Sunday morning, actually, to have this chat with me. Uh, I'll be back with y'all soon. Peace. Good morning. I am super excited. I'm always excited because I always talk to really cool people. Um, and this is someone that I talk to regularly, but I haven't gotten to talk to her on the show in a long time. So I'm joined by the ever amazing, you know, intercontinental jet setter, Miss Wendy Muse, who is this great academic and thinker and political analyst and friend and, you know, uh, podcast host with, you know, the left pocket uh project and i am really really excited to talk to you today about two really important topics that keep playing out um not just across our twitter timelines but across life and across work that we're all involved in um particularly as we're gearing up for another major election cycle and there are going to be hot takes flying all over the place about things like identity <laughs> politics and representation and so I really, you know, Wendy is someone that I think does, a, people say I do a lot of good takes and balance. I don't really know about that. But Wendy is someone that I really feel like breaks it down. And you can try and say a lot of people are inconsistent, but Wendy is consistent to like a T, like, like very consistent in her analysis and conversation and takes such care to go through really detailed, uh, uh, you know, she really curates a space, particularly on Twitter, that allows for really in-depth analysis of issues, ranging from, you know, dealing with representation issues here in the States, or just looking at the broader, like we, we many of us followed along with her travels while she's been in Mozambique and Brazil. And so this was someone I was just like, wow, this conversation continues to play out across, you know, social media, and of course, across the political sphere, um, about representation, about identity politics. So I was like, you know, let me hit up Wendy and see if we can talk. So here she is. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And uh, I really appreciate that super nice intro. That was, it was like an <laughs> overly nice intro, because I just want to say I am not a political analyst. I, I guess you could say I'm a, a people's political analyst. Um, I talk about politics. Well, yeah, but if I, I would be making way more bank if I were a political I mean, analyst. you know, I call myself a political analyst and I'm broke, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like, I have, so in my case, like, and it's funny too, because even Jet Setter, 
I think it's appropriate because I think when people, when sometimes people will be like, oh, Wendy travels a lot. Like, where does she get all this money? And I'm like, I'm in, so I'm, for people who may, maybe don't know, um, I'm doing a PhD in history. And when you're doing a PhD, basically you get really good at begging. So like, I, <laughs> I don't finance my own trips. Like I, I have to put in requests for money for funding from my department. I have to, you know, write for grants to get grant money and fellowships and stuff. So it's a hustle, um, big time. And I've also had to make some difficult decisions, for example, about like places I won't accept money from or like foundations I won't accept money from. Um, so it has been, you know, you have to scrap together money, but I really appreciate it. Yeah, hmm? we've talked we've talked about that too. Um, yeah, you know, and think as I started looking into fellowships and stuff that are available for organizers, and and there are some out there. But we had a conversation uh-huh. one day about that about when I was looking at applying for some money, and actually I missed the deadline, so I didn't even get to apply for that money that we talked about. But mm. we talked about like, can you actually like? Like money is necessary, unfortunately, in a society that we live in to be able to do the work that we're trying to do, right? Unless you're independently wealthy or you right. just have <laughs> some other, you know, or you have access some other way to funding, it is really hard to do this work. And so um, I appreciate you noting that. But we did talk about like, you know, it is important to do the work. It is important to get funding to do that work. But can you take just any money from any uh-huh. source? without really looking at what possible strings could be attached? Are you possibly limiting the work that you're doing, your voice in that space by taking certain money? Like that's a real concern. Uh-huh. So just, just real briefly, how do you navigate that with, with, with what you're doing and how you're, you know, you're, you're able to, to, to still, you know, fund and do the work that you've been, you've been, you know, carving out for yourself. How do you, how do you navigate that, that tension? Right. I mean, one of the things that I try to do, because like, I I have to say this again, like, I'm not rich. I'm nowhere close to rich. Um, I have my husband works and has a regular nine to five job. He's not rich. And so, um, and my average money per year is somewhere around 25 to $28,000. Like, it's not a lot of money. Um, And so what I have to do for travel oftentimes is when I apply for grants, I have to look for grants that can pay for my airfare that will at least pay for my airfare that will also pay for lodging something like that you know and when I'm looking for these things one of the criteria I have is are you giving me money and then plan on using my research for something later on or are you just giving me money and it looks good for your organization it looks good for whatever you know whatever uh, grant funding operation you have and that's it you don't want anything from me you're not going to like require receipts I mean, you may require like literal receipts, right? But like, you're not going to require receipts in terms of like, this is the activist I spoke to. This is the place I went to that you just want to see like, oh, this is the air, this is the flight I bought, you know? Right. Um, and because I think, I think that's really super important, actually, especially considering the work I do. So my research is on um, activists from Brazil who are more or less on the left, either nominally or just by way of their ideology. Um, and then those who were from Brazil on the left and doing activism who were interacting with either literally or physically in some cases for those who traveled with activists and anti-colonial, um, you know, and anti-colonial activists who were in uh, Portuguese speaking African countries. So Mozambique, Angola, Cape Verde, et cetera, during their concurrent struggles against authoritarianism because Brazil was under a dictatorship and these African countries that they were interacting with were 
we're literally like kicking out the colonizers. Mm -hmm. So it's a very difficult, you know, they're both in difficult positions, but I'm looking at the ways that they interacted and um, learned from one another. And then especially in particular, how that changed the Brazilian left in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so I, I have to interview and talk to people and, and stuff who were, um, you know, very much being surveilled during this time period and who are continuing technically to be surveilled, especially now that Brazil is under uh, a fascist, you know, president. And so I think it's important to also respect the safety of the people that I've, I'm talking to, right. um, respect the safety of activist groups as a whole, right? And so I cannot, under any circumstances, take money from people that require detailed reporting at the end. Um, that's another thing. I've even and I've even talked I've talked to um to uh, researchers who've said to me, you know, I had to lie in my reporting at the end. So sometimes they the foundation will require you create like okay. a, a document okay. at the end to say I did this, this is who I talked. Not like too super detailed, but right. you know, we talked I talked to these people, I interviewed these kinds of activists, whatever. And then later on you'll find that your work, especially for a lot of government grants. Uh, depending on the type, but some of them, they will then use your information and you'll, you'll kind of put pieces together and say, oh shit, that's being used in policy, right? That's being used in particular towards foreign policy, tracking certain groups, et cetera. Right. And so you have to be really careful. Um, and so in my case, like I've taken, in my case, I recently had a Fulbright haze. And full, usually when people hear Fulbright, especially if you're on the left, you're kind of like, oh my God, like Fulbright, you know, it's run by the State Department and it has right. all these kinds of implications. And so in my, and, and I don't, I have friends who have regular, what, what I call regular Fulbrights that are, um, that are the ones that are run through the State Department. They're not spies. They're not up to no good, you know, and they're very careful in whatever post grant reporting that they do to not give away, you know, um, what we, we call like sources or interlocutors, right? To protect the identities of the people they work with, to protect even sometimes the locations of the people they work with. But in my case, the type of Fulbright grant that I have is actually not administered by the State Department. Mm -hmm. So just to make that distinction very clear, um, it's actually run by the Department of Education and all they, like the people who evaluate our work are professors themselves, are college professors. They're not they're not the government. Like you don't have government workers going through our grant applications, right? Not not like, you know, Trump's administration is going through our applications and saying this one yes, this one no, right? Um, these are people who've been in their positions for many, many years and who just are uh, either working for the government in that capacity or who and or who are academics in the present. Um, and they literally just say, here's your money go do what you need to do. So they don't require, I mean, I may have to write like a paragraph or something at the end, but they don't require any in-depth reporting. I don't have to represent the United States in any way because that's another um, kind of requirement when you do the other Fulbright. You're considered, they literally call you like kind of an ambassador, right? You're a liaison. Um, and I'm like, I'm not being a liaison for the United States. Like there's no way for that. So in my case, it's luckily, you know, this type of uh, grant that I got, Fulbright Hayes, is literally just they give you money to go to different countries to do your research, especially for people who have, like in my case, are doing research in multiple places because it is very expensive and just logistically very hard as well um, to navigate all these trips 
in a short period of time without right. if you don't have any money. Like if right. you don't have any money, you're not going to Africa. It's just not gonna happen. Mm-hmm. No, um, my dad's been dreaming so. about going to Cape Verde because that's where his mm-hmm. grandfather is from for decades oh, wow. and still has not uh uh does not he actually wants us all to go and I'm like, that's gonna be so expensive, Dad. Like I Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's expensive and also when you get there it can be expensive too. Yeah. Like in my case and a lot of people think oh, you work on South America. Oh, you work on Africa. Like, it can't be that expensive. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You don't, you clearly missed that. (laughs) You don't know what you're talking about. Because Brazil, for example, especially if, like in my case, most, almost all of my research is in major cities. Mm -hmm. So if you're in Rio or if you're in Sao Paulo, it's expensive like New York. And in some, some cases more expensive, like certain things are more expensive because they're imported and then they put a really high import tax on things. So you'll find yourself paying double or triple sometimes the amount you would normally pay for something that is important. And I don't mean like, I'm not buying like fancy stuff, you know, but like certain, certain foods and well, things like that. Oil, right? what, what were you making when you were in Mozambique? And I was telling you how I make my own tortilla chips at home. And you were like, Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if I can yeah, find so, oil here. Cause it's so expensive. Right. Canola oil. So canola, canola oil right. in Mozambique is very expensive. It's like $10 for a regular bottle of canola oil. And so, and this is something that, again, like in Mozambique, which was super expensive, it's one of the most expensive, it's like, it's oddly, okay, so it's one of the poorest countries, like one of the poorest countries in Africa, but it's also one of the most expensive because they import almost everything. Their domestic production market was basically destroyed um, after colonialism because they had subsequent wars, right? So not only did they have a war for independence, during which, you know, Samora Machel, who became the president, he himself was an independence fighter and a communist, by the way. He was trying to to bring back, uh, you know, domestic production and have actual Mozambicans running things, you know, having Mozambican engineers, having Mozambican uh, people running these, not companies, but literally establishing um, infrastructure within the country. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, thanks to the help of the CIA, the Portuguese, like multiple people, uh, multiple countries that did not want to see a country like Mozambique succeed. They had all this internal strife and they ended up having a civil war that lasted until the 90s. So they're they're brand new, like their problems are really, really brand new. And so when I sit here and I'm like, it's expensive, it's expensive for a reason. They were underdeveloped on purpose, you know what I'm saying? So there is a real direct connection between when we talk about like you know, when we talk about the, the things that are going on at the State Department, things that are going on in the CIA, they're having direct effects on other people's countries um, and they're funding other, you know, they're funding people to literally, to literally destroy any progress that could mm-hmm. potentially be made. So that, that's, I mean, it's, it's a personal gripe, like, oh God, it's so expensive, but it's also, it's also a direct effect of, of sort of, you know, state, um, in, intentional state destruction. So right. that's, that's the sad part. Right. And I think, I think what you, what you touch on is a really important, you know, it also helps me segue into to one of our topics for today, but I think what you touched on in terms of the, the, the ongoing destabilization, right. And we had this mm-hmm. conversation, people talk about, Oh, the deep state, Oh, the deep state. I mean, but there's a very real 
you know, conversation that domestically Americans need to be engaged in. And you're someone who, mm-hmm. who's been stressing this. Like I say, Wendy is consistent. And you're someone who's made me think more about this in particular because we get so caught up in domestic policy and what our domestic issues are. And yes, that's absolutely important because it affects our day-to-day lives. But there's a way mm-hmm. in which the same systems that are negatively impacting us domestically are interacting on a larger scale internationally and directly impacting you know, the way other people's lives are existing. Like you mentioned the CIA intervention. Um, and we know, you know I remember... Um, for a project, my daughter actually was reading through the, some of the church reports that have been declassified. She had mm-hmm. to write about in ninth grade a famous assassination and whether or not it was justified or not. And so we found the church reports that she wrote about Patrice Lumumba and, and you know, noted involvement and stuff there of the Belgian government and the CIA and stuff. But now, mm-hmm. you know, we are seeing... Uh, you know, especially in our media here domestically, cheering on the CIA, cheering on the FBI. We see people like regular run-of-the-mill liberals and stuff rooting for these institutions because of the person that we have in charge, you know, in the White House. But, and and we see celebration that the CIA is now headed by women, like a man, as if somehow that culture is just going to change because women, white women are running it. Um, so I, that, 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 that leads me to the segue into talking about representation, right? And, and, and we talk about representation, um, and then we, see, we saw this in the last election cycle that, you know, having women take over places is a good, we've seen the whole thing with Sheryl Sandberg and the lean in as if, you know, that's just the way that women are going to advance across the board. But, but, but Wendy, talk to me a little bit about, like, these, the, the superficial conversation we're having around representation. Mm-hmm. And what's mm-hmm. actually missing, you know, when people are saying, oh, representation in these different spheres? I mean, representation is, I just want to say, and I, and I always say this because I also grapple with this internally, right? Um, I say to myself, representation is symbolically important on one level. And I think especially in the United States, if you consider um, what certain groups have gone through historically and continue to go through in the present, um, sometimes as much as I and someone who's very critical of the state and critical of the government um, and critical of corporations for sure. Um, I think sometimes it still is nice to look and see, okay, there's someone who rep, who, who is from my community. You know, there's someone who's from my ethnic or racial group. There's someone from my gender. Therefore that person I hope is going to understand what I'm going through more. And that way, when it comes time for me to ask that person for something, when it comes time for me to demand my rights, you expect, you have an expectation that that person will be able to empathize, right? You also have an expectation that that person will introduce more relevant issues for your particular group while they're in power. So you say, for example, all right, if the president is black, then he or she can um, you know, maybe work on something related to reparations or maybe work on something related to police brutality. But the reality, of course, we know <laughs> is that sometimes, unfortunately, what ends up happening is that you'll find yourself looking at a president that looks like you and that person will be doing in- extreme damage, intense damage in your community, intense damage towards people like you, almost targeted. You know, it almost feels like in some ways what we see happening sometimes is that people try to overcompensate for their, their racial or ethnic background. And then by doing that overcompensation, they end up becoming aggressive toward the community that they're from, right? So they enact these policies that make it seem like, you see, I'm not just, I'm not just a black person, or I'm not just, I don't just care about this 
community, quote unquote, that I came from. And I'm not even saying that Obama necessarily came from a black community because he was raised in a white and then later sort of multiracial, multiethnic community in a way that I don't think he had quite the same connection. And I, by the way, I'm not discounting his blackness. The man is black. But what I'm saying is in terms of his affinity or understanding of how, for example, I or you might define a black community, it was different. And I think that also shaped in some ways his connection or disconnection in, at some point to black people. But the main thing we have to look at is not just the representation, but the policy behind that person. You know, what are they doing in office? And not just what are they doing for the community that we believe that they come from, but what are they doing for the general populace that then helps protect, um, you know, if, if they're doing universal programs, in what ways are they making sure that the community that people like you and me come from, people who are poor, people who are black, people who, you know, fill in the blank, are are definitely being, um, you know, like listened to, right? Are they talking to us? Are they concerned about how we're disproportionately affected when we talk about, you know, poverty, for example, or when we talk about job loss, or when we talk about even, you know, being ravaged by drug use? All of these things that people now, and I'm going to say it, white people um, are coming to terms with, the Black community and Indigenous communities in the United States have been dealing with since inception. So while I'm happy that you're on the train now, like welcome aboard, you got to make sure that you understand that this train has been running for a long time and it has it doesn't have anywhere to stop anytime soon just because white people have gotten on board now and are also experiencing or at least coming to terms with it, I think learning how to articulate their anger about poverty, drug use, job loss, etc. You know what I'm saying? So we have to be careful about um, mm -hmm. making sure that the people who are at the top, who are supposed to be our representatives, like literally that's what they're called, right? They're supposed to represent people that voted for them and the needs of those people that they're supposed to, to be speaking for, because not everybody can be a senator, not everybody can be a representative. You know, we don't all have time to go and run for office or the money or whatever. So it's their job. And a lot of them are failing to do their job. But I do want to say one other thing really quickly. When we talk about representation's importance, I think oftentimes whenever I have these discussions about places like Brazil, where you go outside and you see in, in most major cities, you see a ton of black people. You see a ton of people who are black, brown. You know, it, it, it's not a white country by any means. There are white areas. There are predominantly white areas of Brazil. Right. But ultimately, Brazil is a very black country. And yet when you turn on the television, all white people and it's like white people that you don't even they're like they're like swedish white and not i know not everybody in sweden is sweden is white but like it is the stereotypical like european blonde blue eyed you know that's what you see on television and for me i can't imagine growing up in a country where my mother my father everyone in my family people that i see when i go outside are one way and then i turn on the television or i look at politicians and they're a completely different way like there was there's no brazilian cosby show you know what i'm saying so like that that affects you as you're growing up that affects your understanding of your your appearance your beauty that affects your understanding of the way you see the world that affects your understanding of the way you move through the world like if you don't see people on television that are from your racial group or from your from your ethnic group, or even your class background. I mean, there there are no poor people on TV. Let's be real. Which poor people do we see on TV? We see poor people on cops. 
that's like the extent of poor people on television and then maybe honey boo boo or something we see very degrading images of poor people mm-hmm. and so if you don't see yourself at all you begin to internalize that you begin, I'm, I'm ugly you know i'm not worthy of being um a member of society i'm not seen as an equal citizen you know you 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 take this stuff in it's not like it just exists in a vacuum where like oh i don't see myself on tv too bad oh well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna feel any kind of way about that that stuff is real and so i think in some ways we have to really understand also that representation at least in the media is very very important um because it, it gives us a, a reference point. You know, we've been socialized to see ourselves as racialized subjects. We are racialized subjects. Whether or not race is real is not up for debate at this point because that's how we live it, right? We know that race right. is not real. It's a construction, but like that construction has material effects. That, that construction, you know, the racial construction meant that some people were going to be enslaved for their entire lives and their children were going to be enslaved and other people weren't, right. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. So it matters is what I'm saying. It matters. Um, but we have to be careful of not putting too much uh, weight in the idea of representation alone. We have to also make demands for things. No, and I think I think that's a really, like, really, really strong point that you mentioned. And, and just going back to your earlier point in there about Obama, right, and the difference uh-huh. in terms of representation and symbolic representation. And also when you're talking about, like, you know, community, not just community, I don't think community affinity would be the right way to say it, but, like, you know, community experience and understanding, right? Because uh-huh. that's the thing, like, we can have folks, we say, oh, representation, because we have Ben Carson, but, you know, are these people... <laughs> I mean, that's, that's right. I mean, Clarence Thomas, Ben Carson, there, there, uh-huh. there, there are numerous examples, but like, is that the fact that they are in the position that they're in, does that actually lend or yield to having the, the things that you talked about when we look and we see someone in a particular position? Because unfortunately people do take representation to automatically equate to now this means, you know, something beneficial or positive or forward moving for everyone that is in that similar group as that one person. Right. And we uh-huh. know experience that that's just not the end all be all. That's often, unfortunately not the case. Um, there uh-huh. are people who get treated as exceptional. And so they're there because they're exceptional and they're uh, an exception, not the rule. And it doesn't really benefit, you know, everyone else. However, I do agree with you in terms of representation. Um, and I know a lot of folks will just say things like, oh, but as long as we have representation of ideas, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good point. We do need to have, you know, certain ideas reflected and represented because we don't have any real left conversation happening, honestly, on uh, media and our politics with rare exception. Now we're starting to see a little bit more of that, but so there is a argument to be made about ideas, but even when we're talking about, oh, the left or oh, progressives, I mean, when it's only coming from the experience and viewpoint of white males, you're leaving out a lot of us who contribute uh-huh. to the basis. So like the balance between making sure that we have people who are strong and right on the issues, as well as making sure that we have representative and, you know, equitable spaces and you know happening i mean that's something that continues to be attention that we're working through but when you were talking about obama you know you know in terms of his actual like experience growing up you know um because he did grow up spend some time growing up abroad which is very different for a lot of american-born black people um there's this conversation that has been bothering me and i you know folks were like are people really saying that Yes, people are really saying that now with Kamala Harris, you know, talk of Kamala Harris running for president, 
she's um she's indian and jamaican she's indian black um and because of that uh her mother's jamaican you know there's some people who are saying she's not really black like us so we can't expect her to actually understand being black um, which is very interesting considering we just saw uh, a, a news reporter botch reporting on like the excitement at Howard over her, right, with her alumni, with, with some alum, and a Howard sorority was screeching in excitement, right, at the mention of Kamala Harris uh-huh. running for president, which for folks who aren't familiar, that Howard sorority is the first black uh, sorority uh, of the AKAs, Alpha Kappa Alpha, who are not uh-huh. just a Howard-based sorority, they are an international yeah. black sorority, and it's a ski wee, not a screech. Uh, right. I, I don't know <laughs> if white sororities do this too, uh, with no. you know calls and things like that, but there are hand gestures, there are uh, uh, there are calls that people do when they're engaged with their group members. And if you don't know these things, you should ask somebody before tweeting about them. But it's really interesting <laughs> this conversation to say that she's not black because she has an immigrant mother and in, in it, you know, her parents are immigrants. Um, that somehow black immigrants aren't also black. Like that conversation is really like messing with my head. Again, mm-hmm. not that there is an actual valid, you know, discussion about her record, particularly as an AG. There was an article that came out recently that discussed the tension between how she presents as this resistance hero with these really cool snapbacks and hearings and stuff but then how she has it presented before she was elected to Senate and actually the increase in prosecution of nonviolent drug uh, offenses and other things during her tenure um, when she was AG of California, you know, the state's top cop. I mean, there's actually a picture circulating of her right now with border police um, and, and ICE and she's smiling and wearing the jacket, or whatever, that's like really shaking people up. So, I mean, there is definitely a conversation to be had about, you know, whether or not she can be trusted, just all types of stuff, right? But this notion mm-hmm. that because of the immigrant status of her parents, that somehow she isn't black really bothers me. My dad's mm-hmm. my dad's side of the family is like I said, they're from the islands. Um they're from Barbados. And I don't know that you could have told my grandmother or my grandfather that because their parent they were first generation Americans, they weren't black or that my father being second generation and most of his family is from the islands or lives in the islands that he's not like, I don't, I don't even know how we begin to define that for each other like this. And it really baffles me that we're sitting here in 2019 still having this BS conversation about who is black enough and who's really black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, it is surprising and frustrating. And I mean, like I said earlier, when I was talking about Obama, I think to clarify as well, my, my discussion of his background is not to say that he's not black. Right. For, and I'm not clarifying for you, but clarifying right, for anyone right, who's listening. Right. Not to say that he himself is not black, but what I said is, what I mean is that his experience yeah. living in Hawaii, living among a very vast, culturally diverse I group mean, of people. They spent time in Indonesia when he was younger, too. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. I was, but yeah, Indonesian um, background, or at least, you know, like cultural background, cultural exposure is not typical of African-Americans. So when I'm talking about people who are of African descent living in the United States, his experience, unless maybe you're an army brat or something, right? Like if your parents are in the military, which you will see that kind of travel and, you know, like living among a totally different group from yourself. But for the most part, the people who were voting for Obama, who put him in office, were speaking and living, uh, speaking to and living in a quote unquote African-American experience insofar as they grew up in the United States 
the experience, the racism that we have and the type of racism we have in the United States. They may have experienced and likely were experiencing the type of class inequality we have in the United States. You know, so that that can that changes who you are. And that also establishes what you understand as blackness, because your blackness is, of course, of course, shaped by your U.S. experience. That includes people, actually, who are black immigrants who come here as well. So if you and I have a friend who does a lot of research on um, Haitian university students and they're kind of um, moving into an African, a comparable African-American experience because everyone assumes that they're African-American, right? So before they open their mouths and they say, I'm Haitian or my mother is Haitian or whatever, they're going to be seen by law enforcement, by institutions, by universities, by their peers Hmm. as black people. And when I say black people in this case, I mean American, U.S. born black people, because the assumption is that there are no black immigrants, right? Even though there are, and there are a lot. And the crazy part, and you and I were talking about this the other day, that like black immigrants had a major impact on what we consider black culture in the mm-hmm. United States, Absolutely. right? If you look at rap music, rap music was started by Afro-Latinos and Afro-Caribbean people who were living in the Bronx together, yep. suffering yep. in poverty, yep. and talked about it. Yep. If you look at multiple black movements, SNCC, all of these groups, if you look at their origins, a lot of them were, a lot of the, the early organizers for many, many black groups were coming from Afro-Caribbean. Look at Marcus, where's Marcus, Marcus Garvey Mosiah from? Marcus Garvey, right? exactly. Where, right. Marcus Garvey is from Jamaica. Marcus Garvey's not from, not from Minnesota, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> we're having this strange conversation where all of a sudden we're reinventing the wheel and we're changing history in very dangerous ways. And I think that, first of all, this, this weird disconnects that people have with their and it's it's a, it's a product of how we're miseducated right mm-hmm. and this is intentional they i mean i think i think the powers that be would love to see more black people fight and more more latinos fight and whatever have these inner intra community squabbles and it's based entirely on the at the education that we're not privy to we're not given we're not provided with a decent even sufficient education on our histories Right. And I think this is also where representation does become important, right? Who is at the top saying we need to learn about these things? Nobody. So we do need to learn about these things. And I didn't learn about so much stuff before I went to college, before I went to, to even grad school. There were things I just didn't know about these really important connections between African-Americans who are descendants of slaves in the United States and people of African descent in other countries who, by the way, are also very much descendants of slaves. And, and how they impacted the U.S. Because this is the other thing that's a bit strange to me. There seems to be this, I, I don't know where it comes from, but there seems to be a lack of understanding that people in the Caribbean were, were also slaves. Like people who come from, so in the case of Kamala, or of Kamala Harris, her father is from Jamaica. Her mother is Indian. And in her case, like Jamaicans, if you want to talk about slavery, don't get me started on Jamaican slavery. Like yep. I, I encourage everybody to go read books on Jamaican slavery. They were worked to death. And so obviously people were worked to death in the United States, but the slavery model was slightly different because Jamaica and Latin America in general on the, the Eastern coast of Latin America was much closer to West Africa, which is where all the slaves at that point were coming from. Right. Most of them were coming from West, the West African side. And so if you look at a map, which we also aren't good at in the United States. So let's talk some <laughs> geography for a second. West, West coast of Africa, if you look at it on a map, what's next to it on the other side? Latin America. 
Jamaica, Caribbean, southern part of the United States, but it's much closer to the western, the eastern coast of Latin America, if you're talking about Brazil, right? It's right there. It's literally like a hop, skip, and a jump. That was their first stop, actually. Usually, their first stop when they came with the boats from Africa was either somewhere in the Caribbean or somewhere in Brazil. Yep. So they're, they're, these are the first stops, people. <laughs> so, like, they weren't stopping there just to, like, hang out. They were stopping to drop off slaves, to pick up additional slaves who were being imported within the Americas. They were also there uh, to feed the slaves again, to restock their boats and get back on the road, basically. Uh, because they wanted to, sometimes, there, there are lots of good books that talk about this, but how they would, like, get off the boat, oil up the slaves, feed them a little bit, get them ready for sale. Because obviously, if you've been, if you've been in the hull of a ship for months and months, you're not going to be healthy, right? You're going to be sick. Right. You're going to be skinny, probably. You're just not going to be in good shape. So they, they would try to get the slaves in shape, put them on the market early. And then whatever they didn't sell, whatever they weren't set to sell in, in, Brazil or in the Caribbean, then they would go up to the United States and drop off the rest. This is how it worked. And so if you look at the proximity for Caribbean, the Caribbean to Africa, what ended up happening usually is because it was so much easier to get slaves and less expensive, they would work them. They said the average life of a slave in Jamaica was around six, seven years. This is also the case in Brazil. So they would work them to death. It was like, you know, you get like getting something cheap from the dollar store. You use it until it falls apart and usually falls apart in a year. You get another one. Go to the dollar store, get another one. This is how they thought of slaves. So like, I'm sorry, but if you want to, you want to talk to me about slavery and struggle, we can't do that. We can't play this game where the U S was the only place where there was slavery and where slavery was. I don't like these comparisons of which slavery was worse or better, but we have to understand that slavery operated in different ways in different places. And the slavery that they had in, in the Caribbean was, particularly harsh because of the ease with which slave owners could get new slaves. So like I said, average life, average lifespan was somewhere between six to seven years. And then they would just get new ones. And, um, you know, it was, it was very difficult for a lot of Caribbean slaves to even organize precisely because of the type of labor they were engaged in and the short lifespan. And so the fact that you see things like, the Haitian Revolution even happening is like a miracle. I mean, it's, it's, it's a testament to the degree to which these slaves were really, really working to, to fight for their freedom. I mean, it's because if, if you consider the conditions, it was not, not a cakewalk, you know, not at all. And so it's very strange to me that people don't understand or want to even consider um, this, this shared history of struggle and shared history of enslavement, first and foremost. And so the idea that people from the Caribbean or people from Latin America who are of African descent are not Black is, like, strange to me. But what we do have to understand is they, they have a form, a type of cultural Blackness that is different from ours because they grew up in different environments. They have different languages, different um, different uh colonizers technically you know they some were colonized by the british some were colonized by the french others by portuguese spanish etc so that part is going to be different but it's just i just see it as like another flavor of blackness i don't see it as uh it's unfortunate that it's been <clears throat> kind of portrayed as a, a different type of blackness to the point that we need to be fighting one another um because that to me is really dangerous and i but at the same time i do want to say that i think there are sometimes, unfortunately, because of brainwashing that other black people from other countries have taken in, and also brainwashing that you see in the United States, that there is a kind of uh, hierarchy of black people. And in the U.S., what happens is the hierarchy generally tends to go toward 
uh, immigrant black people as being seen as better, more hardworking. All of this stuff is, is like leftover slave shit. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's literally not new. There was a discrimination of foreign slaves. I write like kind of the reverse, but at the, during slavery, there was some, um, you know, there are some cases where you'll see intra slave conflicts because of these differences. But ultimately, at the end of the day, people had to work together because the person cracking the whip was the person who was cracking the whip that they had to fight. Right. So I think that there's a real there's those those differences sometimes were pronounced and people would fight over them and, and they had terms for different types of slaves and stuff. But this was learned behavior. Right. We were taught to see ourselves in the United States as American first in a lot of ways. And I think that that is unfortunately, you know, a dangerous uh, vestige of colonialism and of slavery, but it's something that we need to get rid of and that they need to get rid of too. Because I think you will see, I think I know, I mean, you will see sometimes um, very negative language being used about black Americans, African Americans by foreign black people as well. And they said, all of this is brainwashing. It's from continuous conditioning from colonialism to make us believe that one group is different from another in a way that makes them better or worse. And we have to get rid of, like, we as a community of people of African descent in general have to get rid of this because it's very dangerous. And I think it's something that it just tears us, it keeps us from coming together to fight the real people in power and the real, the real bad guy, which is capitalism and colonialism and ongoing coloni settler colonialism in the United States, mm -hmm. ongoing imperialism, you know, it's, it's hard. It's like, it's hurting us to be playing these weird divisive games that like don't have any real basis in history. So I don't think that it makes any sense to debate Kamala Harris's blackness. She's a black woman. When she goes outside, people see her as a black woman. When they look at her father, they see him as a black man. And even we can talk about also how there are plenty of people of African descent in India on another day, because I don't know, I don't know enough about her mom's uh, ethnic background within India to comment on that. But there are people from Africa who migrated there by virtue, migrated in some cases and also were enslaved and brought to India. So there are black people in India who are, who have very dark skin and quote unquote African features. So it's kind of insane that we're even like, sitting here arguing, not you, but like <laughs> people are arguing about if she's black enough. I, I don't understand that. Cause if we do if we want to do a DNA test, Kamala Harris might be blacker than me and you. And you know, it's just, it's a ridiculous claim. Yeah. Like, so I, I, whew, that, that was a word, <laughs> but no, but you're, but, but you're really right. When you look at like, like culturally, right. When you think about, cause what, like, I think in a chat, we conversation we were having, I was talking about one of my favorite poems, Claude McKay, because if we must uh -huh. die, like was a poem that I learned actually when I was like 10 in summer camp. And that was, when you think about the Harlem Renaissance, you think about, you know, early organizing in terms of black communists and things like that. You know, a lot of people in these spaces and movements were not quote unquote black American, right? In the way that we're mm -hmm. today, you're absolutely right. They were Caribbean. I mean, you think about the relationship that people had in terms of, you know, looking at Pan-Africanism, looking at this broader concept of the African diaspora and really beginning to build. When you look at the 60s and think about how, you know, folks who were beginning to uh, rise up in terms of independence and overthrowing colonial governments, 
folks were looking at what was happening here in the States when Malcolm X was Uh traveling, you know, post nation of Islam and his reflections and stuff that wasn't like, Oh, we can't mess with them because they not black like us. He might've said we can't mess with white people yet because we got to have, you know, inter, you know, we got to have our own unity first, but Uh it's so amazing to watch how, how people have become so distant. And then the other thing is, of course, you know, she's married to a white man. So that's always Uh a big at black women, right? Well, their, their, their husband is not black. So somehow it makes them less than, but we will take advice and the opinion of black men themselves who are not married to or in other way supporting or with black women. And it's just this weird juxtaposition. Um, But conversely, Barack Obama was somehow saved because Michelle Obama is not only black, but she black, right? She's Uh from the South side of Chicago. Her parents and her family have that more traditional. uh, uh, So the stereotypical black American experience that is respected Whereas, you know, Kamala Harris does not have that in her spouse to kind of, I guess, redeem her for people. But it really gets into this deepness about like, you know, who is Black enough? And then also the issues we have, you know, around like what that experience even is, because that experience, no two Black families have the same exact experience in this country. Uh Some of us do have, like, like I was like, I'm sitting here reading this and I'm like, my grandmother is first generation with my grandparents were first generation. Right. Like when we were cleaning uh-huh. up my grandma's house, we found her mother's paper. We found like documentation from when her mother came through Ellis Island, like her dad uh-huh. came on a shipping boat. Cause he was like a seaman or some stuff like that. I don't really, I don't really remember, but like they both came through, they both had to come through Ellis Island. My mom's family, on the other hand, they, we can't go past South Carolina and slavery. Right. Uh-huh. And so there is a lot of that, that is mixed in the communities. And you're right. There are, there are communities and folks are, you know, Caribbean immigrants, but that is a, they don't come here. When I think about growing up in New York and folks, a lot of folks out there saying this probably listen to Biggie Smalls. And y'all know full well, Willetta Thomas, if you, Willetta Wallace, if you've ever heard his mama speak, she got a thick accent. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone yeah. who was so crucial in shaping, you know, mid-90s rap, you know what I'm saying? His uh-huh. mother is not, he's first generation, right? His mama is not from here. You can hear her accent and it's thick. But that, when you think uh-huh. about Cool Herc and other people, like you were noting, I mean, same type of thing. And it's just like, it, it, it boggles my mind when we say these things. Now, are there cultural differences and are there other things that maybe we can talk about in terms of how groups interact and do we collectively build? Sure, there's definitely that conversation. But to get into the superficial conversation about people not being Black and understanding the experience, I mean, one could argue that because, you know, with her girl, if she grew up middle class and in a particular way, that she doesn't understand the plight or the experience of low income black people struggling in America. But you could say that uh-huh. about anyone in the elite ruling black political class right now, right. who even if they grew up poor themselves, they're certainly far removed from it with some of the ways that they move, take money, and and and, and affect policy. I mean, look at our we have mayors in Baltimore, you have my mayor here in Atlanta, you have mayors across the country who are black right? Who are cheer? you know, folks love to talk about how my mayor, my, my mayor's name is Keisha. My mayor's name is Keisha and she's still allowing Atlanta to be gentrified the hell out of and black. <laughs> right. Place, right? Like these are still yeah. very real things. Like one of the things that came up actually, you know, when Keisha was running for mayor and even when we did our protest during um, Net Roots uh, uh, with, of Stacey Evans and we started talking about trust black women, 
like immediately afterwards, I think I posted on Facebook, like in the few days after, you know, that protest was like, um, you know, trust black women who are committed to, you know, liberation and dismantling white supremacy or something, paraphrasing myself, something like that. Because let's be real, you know, we have even amongst our, our spaces and our folks, we have people who are more willing to focus and work around white fragility and access to those spaces and will gladly trade our experiences and advancement for their own personal, you know, agenda. And we see this happening constantly, right? So this is like, there was a conversation. I was like, I was like, at some point I'm going to find a space to have this conversation. It gets tricky because having these types of conversations in mixed company, so to speak, mm-hmm. can choose what they want. And so while I'm all down for criticizing, you know, black leadership at the same time, there is a vitriol and there there is a tinge, I hate racially tinged language, I hate that phrasing, but there is something there, unfortunately, sometimes when there are white people critiquing these folks that exists, uh-huh. that doesn't, that isn't present when they're critiquing similarly situated white leadership, right? And so how do we navigate these, this discourse and have these conversations? Because we do need to have them, right? If we're going to start having mm-hmm. better politics and better policy and really supporting better candidates, whether it's pushing Bernie Sanders to do better this go round or pushing, you know, those candidates who are of color and progressive, um, you know, to do better across these issues and how they're talking about them. Because I feel like there are so many people who are trying to like be good progressives that they're like rushing to make sure people know that they reject identity politics. And I'm always saying to folks like, do you even understand what you're saying you're rejecting? You're rejecting, mm-hmm. you know, the work, you're rejecting the, the, not just theoretical, the lived experience of black women and of brown women that have come before all of us who we all should actually be learning, who are still around, who we all should be learning from right now not just some bastardized version that you've seen misconstrued in politics and media today. Right. Uh-huh. And, and, and it's so yeah. it's a challenge because we do need to talk about this, these things, but at the same time, what spaces should we be talking about them in? But I was just like, bump it. I'm gonna bring Wendy on and we're going to talk about it. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I think so to talk about that really briefly, I, first of all, um, you know, it's something that I've actually written about and I've, I wrote this mm-hmm. article like a two years ago and it's called what is when is it right to criticize the left and in that article I mean it's almost like I feel like it was it was starting to happen then but then it's like gotten intensive it's like gotten more more crazy since then like gotten much worse um I have I wrote that basically what I see progressives anger toward when it comes to identity politics is not technically identity politics they get they're getting angry over the weaponization of identity politics which I'm all for like yes get angry about that but then then they go a step too far and they think any discussion of race at all any discussion of gender at all somehow fits into a weaponization and they've they've because they've and I mean that's convenient because uh, if you're a white progressive that's fine if you're a progressive that wants to ignore race that fits into your model right you're like we don't need to talk about these issues it's fine we shouldn't talk about them any, and then, it's, as I said, it's just a step too far. It's a step to st- from saying, here's this incorrect, misused version, misrepresentation of an actual theory. And I, I would say the same thing with regard to intersectionality. And I talk about these mm-hmm. two things together because they're both used, the anger towards them is used in a similar way, right? Right. And I just think it's interesting. I just, I just want to use, it's interesting. I'm going to use interesting like I use it in the South because I am a Southerner. Uh, I'm from Tennessee for people who don't know. 
Uh, we use interesting in the South to kind of mean a lot of things. And Noah, you can attest to this, I'm yes, sure. Yes, because I say it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when we say interesting, it doesn't always mean interesting like in a flat, normal way. It has a lot of connotations to it, and those connotations are bad. So let me just, but I'm going to be nice. Let me just say, it's interesting to me that the two theories that these people go after just so happen to be theories uh, that were created by black women. Mm -hmm. So in the case of identity politics, it was created by the women who were the black, many, in many cases, lesbian or bisexual socialist women who were organizing at the Combahee River Collective, right? Which for those of you who don't know about that, there are plenty of books we can give you. Uh, Kiyanga Yamada Taylor's being one of the best ones, I think, who really talks about this. Um, but those women were black, those women were socialists, those women were lesbian, bisexual, uh, alternative gender representation, all fill in the blank, whatever, and many of them were poor too. And so fill in the blank, whatever oppressed group you want, they're like fitting into it, and they were coming up with these theories. Then intersectionality was sort of building on some of what these women did, and also, by the way, building on the work of black female communists, like you know, <laughs> this is another thing that's kind of left out in this discussion of intersectionality, that it was, it was, a, it was building upon a lot of the work that, that black communists were doing and that black female communists were doing and that black workers' rights activists were doing. That a woman who was, a former, who was formerly enslaved herself was doing. Those two issues are being attacked so much is telling to me. I think it reveals a lot about, about <laughs> the anger toward them. But I also think in large part, I mean, some people just don't know this, but I think the origins of that anger comes from, in many ways, this, these discussions, like why and who the people were that came up with them. Um, you don't see, for example, at least on the left, you don't see terms like neoliberalism being attacked quite as much, you know? And neoliberalism is, I also think, a very valid term, but people misuse it a lot. People don't understand fully what it means in some cases. That's fine. But the problem is we're not discarding that. We still see it as a, as a usable and important tool to discuss the current you know, economic situation and certain forms of economic politics. Mm -hmm. But we somehow, for some, reason, for some reason, we don't discard that. We don't discard discussions of, of Marxism. We don't discard discussions of capitalism, but we're gonna discard discussions of a very important critical uh, you know, theory that's been created by black women. I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> um, and I think also the same, same thing with regarding uh, disregarding certain theories that come from the queer community. Uh, and I mean, these women in many cases were also queer, but I'm just saying in terms of what we consider quote unquote queer theory, there's also an attack on that. And I think it's, it's basically like the right wing bleeding into the left. And there's a lot of overlap in ways that I think are concerning. Um, and I think a lot of it, you know, one of the things that, Someone said when I was at the conference recently, in, at the history conference in Chicago, Barbara Ransby was there, who's an amazing black academic. She's incredible. She's an activist. Um, and, you know, one of the things that she said that I have always said and that I 100% agree with her on is that white leftists, unfortunately, and white progressives in these, especially in, the, you know, adding myself here and a lot of what I see in online spaces, cannot get past their whiteness to get towards liberation right? They cannot get past it. And unfortunately, they're not looking at, and this is another thing that Barbara said, she said they're not looking towards the 
histories and traditions and radical work that that has been done and that's continuing to be done in communities of color. We have always had to survive. We indigenous and black people in this country have been under attack forever. So for us, we know what it's like to be attacked. We know what it's like to have to come together under very dire circumstances to fight for even, yes, you know, economic rights, right? We're not just talking about, oh, I just want to be an equal with you on race. It's also like, I need to eat today, you know? So this, these fights are purely, in many cases, to the bone, economic struggle, class struggle. And yet we're being dismissed because, White progressives cannot get past their whiteness. They cannot see past themselves. And I think it's very dangerous that we still have to deal with this because it does make, not ever, I'm not, and also, again, not all white leftists, right? There are plenty of white leftists out there who know what's up and who are doing a good job and who are really fighting towards everybody's rights. But there's some people who just see themselves and they don't want to see anybody else involved. They don't want to see anybody else in leadership. They don't want to, they don't want to talk about race even though race is very much part of a discussion about class. Um, and sadly, they, I'm starting to see, at least online, not, again, not so much off it, but online I'm starting to see some people who are also of color who have been, for whatever reason, been, I guess they've just been taking in this information and accepting it at face value. And they're not understanding that class operates in multi-ethnic and multi-racial societies through, oftentimes through race. It's not an accident that black people in this country are the poorest, disproportionately poor. It's not an accident that native people in this country are disproportionately poor. It's not an accident that these two groups are also, and if you want to be technical about it, Native Americans are the most targeted by the police. Black people are, are close second. So like, if we're talking about percentages based on the population, the Native American population and the indigenous population in the United States is not very big, but they have the most murders and violence from the police. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry, but like you can't sit here and act like the history of slavery and settler, settler colonialism and genocide is not somehow connected to what's happening in the present. And I think there's a concerted effort, sadly, that's underway to disconnect history and reality from what's going on and from our discussions of class. And sadly, some people who are at the helm doing that are themselves black people and that or, or themselves people of color. And it's, it's disturbing to me. And I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to grapple with how do you reach people to explain to them that it's not like that in real life. Like you can say whatever you want on paper, but if we look Absolutely. at the history, it's not that way. Absolutely. And also just because you individual person have never personally had that experience that pointing that out that you have never had this experience, you don't understand this experience. So it colors your judgment of this com- in this conversation. That's not being mean. That's like really making an understand that you can't just extrapolate out from your own limited, limited experience and you can't discount mm-hmm. the experience, the very well documented experience of countless others, just because you yourself haven't experienced, you know, had it. Right. And right. I, think, I think what you're touching on is like so, so really deep. And even though, like, I know you were talking about, like, when you were at the conference, like, you know, there are all these amazing, you know, academics and people, organizers, and you were talking about a panel that you were live tweeting, which was so cool, right? You know, you had this really great convening of like thinkers and academics, et cetera. And there was a panel you were talking about that was really unique because it was organizers and academics together having this conversation, mm-hmm. which, if folks don't know, it's actually rather rare, right? We tend mm-hmm. to have 
separated as if, you know, some have good opinions worth listening to and thoughts and others are just like indispensable. And so it's rare to have these moments where that crossover is actually happening. But I, I one other thing that you had touched on when, you, when we were talking was that, you know, we were wondering like if these people are even aware of what happens like on social media, in these conversations, and they are, right? Uh-huh, but uh-huh. like, they're so busy and so steep. They're in a different space than us. And I, my dad, academic I, like, my, my dad and I were having this conversation. Um, we've had it several times or whatever. And he's always like, you know, you're, cause we'll sit there and do armchair analysis, watching, you know, news programs and stuff. Or I'll explain to him what's happening on Twitter. You know, when we're watching a particular news program, I'm like, oh yeah. So the background, remember, this is what I was telling you about. And now these are the people who are on talking about blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, wow, did it, did it. I was on an Al Jazeera segment the other day and my dad and I were talking because he watches TYT every once in a while and then I'm just like, Ugh. but he was like, he was like, oh, wow, look, you're on with Jank. Or he was like, brother, I should say Jank is on with you. He should know how awesome, you know, you are. And I was like, I don't really care, dad, like whatever. But <laughs> we were talking about like, there are all these people who like, what's happening on Twitter is like totally, it's not a part of their reality, right? But what I keep saying to people is like, why does it matter? Why can we not just sit here and like be silent? People with relative influence or larger platforms bumble and make these really bad assumptions or bad um, narratives and stuff is they're actually shaping conversations, right? Because Mm -hmm. people will get sought out. You know, people are writing pieces. People will get sought out for interviews. People are actually shaping, you know, relationships and conversations. Uh, when when these politicians are kind of looking to people or people folks think they have access or they want to embed people with their campaigns, you know, they're looking at who has, you know, the pull, so to speak, in terms of these sites and things like that, not actually who is making the most political sense and, and, and mm-hmm. the best analysis. And so it is important. I mean, it shouldn't consume all our time. It does consume time sometimes, though, unfortunately. But it is really important to make sure that we are actually correcting bad narratives. I mean, we've had so many battles, so to speak, over stuff like this. But I, but But the one thing that you and I in particular, keep having to deal with are issues involving like, what does white supremacy and how does it mean more than just, you know, Steve King and these other people, but what is dismantling that intersectionality, identity politics, like being better on these conversations and issues and what it is and what it isn't and how talking about being black in America in these spaces is not like a distraction or divisive. Like we keep having to have these conversations and to inform people in a very particularized way, because unfortunately, even within these larger progressive platforms, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And it's also, I mean, like I said, just when Barbara Rainsby talked, I was just like, yes, like just everything she said at the conference was so real to me because Mm -hmm. as I, you know, another aspect of what she's saying is not just about the need to get past whiteness. And that that line in and of itself is, I think, an important one, but to, mm-hmm. to really kind of like go deeper with that, it's not just about getting past whiteness, but it's also about understanding that like, if you don't get past your whiteness, we keep reinventing the wheel. So we keep having to go back to square one instead of pushing forward because we already know what this experience is like. We already know, a lot of us already have experienced poverty very directly. A lot of us have experienced racism and the way these things combine. The point is, is like, we are coming from a place of lived experience. So we don't have to explain to one another what it means to not be able to pay a bill or to not eat one night. Like that's, that's the thing that I know. Really. Yeah. I think that like, this is, it, and, and again, there are poor white people too. And this is what also bothers me about a lot of these analyses, quote unquote, that discard 
racism and discussions, they also have a fictitious view of white people, of poor white people. Because let me tell you something, when I was growing up, I, and I went to, I had the opportunity to go to a private all-girls school and blah, 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 but I was also on scholarships. Like, I wasn't one of the ones whose parents could pay out of pocket, you know? And I had friends at my school who were poor white kids. And, like, they, I, we identified more closely to get because of our experience of, of being poor sometimes, you know, like this is, it wasn't even about race for us. It was like, she gets what I'm going through. I get what she's going through. And I think that there's like this weird disconnect. They think that a lot of the, a lot of the people who have, have become the loudest voices on the progressive left as of late, don't seem to understand white poverty either. Nope. And they don't seem to understand that poor white people are not all these like racists who can't talk about race or racism or, like, or gender. They're not accidental racists, right? They're not people yeah. who are just, it, but for if we cured their poverty, then they wouldn't be racist anymore. I mean, right. Like it's, it's, they don't understand. They don't understand anything about, I mean, I don't, I don't think these people have any friends and if they do, they certainly don't have any friends who are poor. Um, but a lot of them seem to disregard the fact that like, Poor white people are also not a monolith and not all poor white people are racist KKK members that we can't talk about race with and that we have to protect from the discussion of race. And not all poor white people are saints either. But like the point is, is that they, the image that they've constructed of white, poor white people is that they're all working in a factory. They all want to join a union. They all hate black people and they all love Donald Trump. And I'm like, that's not true. The majority of poor white people didn't vote. So like don't talk and like look at who voted for Donald Trump in larger numbers, people who were doing all right, people who were mid- upper middle class or wealthy were the ones who really stocked his base. And so like I'm sorry, I don't like this this, this discussion about um you know if, of white progressives who keep trying to talk say you know we don't need to talk about race, race is like not important and we shouldn't bring it up and you can't call people white supremacists and you can't use this word, you can't use that word. Like, I'm sorry, but I can call people whatever I want. And if you are attacking people of color and you're literally beating them in the streets, use a white supremacist. And you're also a fascist. Like, let's just be like, 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 honestly, I mean, like, I'm sorry, but they don't need to be protected. If you're a white supremacist, me not call me calling you a white supremacist is not going to make you all of a sudden vote for a progressive. Like that's not how this works. Like you can't if you are already at a position where you are like because I keep hearing people say like the Proud Boys aren't fascists and they're not white supremacists and blah blah blah. And I'm like last time I checked they absolutely are, but for some reason people don't want to see that because they think that calling these groups and calling these politicians what they actually are will somehow hurt the feelings of these like jackboot white supremacists who are literally killing people. Like, I don't think you can convert those guys. And if you can, that's great. Go do that, please. We need that. But I also don't think that that's my job. And I don't think that black people and people of color in general should set aside very real concerns about racism and how, yes, it is keeping them from being equal in our society. And I mean, economically equal, because if I can't get a job because I'm black, or if I'm being harassed on the job because I'm a woman, that affects my paycheck, right? So like, let's be all the way real about this. Like you cannot disconnect them. And I'm not gonna disconnect them just to make some white supremacists on the left or the right feel good about themselves because it doesn't get us anywhere. And we need to start getting somewhere. Like that's, that's the point. Like if you wanna have a debate with me about 
why I called somebody racist or not, instead of actually focusing and talking about why those racism, that, that racism needs to be eradicated, then you're doing activism wrong. Like your, fo- your focus is misguided. And I don't think that talking about race and its intersection with economic disparity somehow makes me, as I've seen people say things like, um, like race reductionist. I don't think talking about just because they use, I think sometimes people who just talk about race at all are considered race reductionists. And like, I'm not, and I don't think you are. And I don't think a lot of people who are labeled as such are. It's just that we also understand that racism is an impediment to economic inequality because there's a deep connection. Like it's not separable. You cannot separate the two. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for taking some time out and joining me. Um, any final thoughts or, or also let everyone know where they can subscribe and like and find the podcast and then where they can find you. And But don't be following her, finding her to harass her because I'm tired of the harassment. Of <laughs> uh, I am not yeah. here for it. <laughs> I'm generally, I, it's funny too, because I think sometimes people think I'm like going to be mean or something. I'm actually like super nice. And even you to are people who nice. are but like even sometimes to people that I shouldn't be nice to online, I'm like very, I'm generally pretty patient with them. I don't lash out at people unless they're like straight up just coming at me for no reason, like attacking me for, for nothing or like, I don't know. They're, but generally, like even if I disagree with something I or disagree with someone, I will have a conversation with you. Like that's not a problem. Um, but if you start the conversation by harassing me, then we're not going to obviously have a conversation. Um, but anyway, uh, people can find me personally uh via at muse wendy and that's m-u-s-e-w-e-n-d-i and usually on my timeline you'll see me talking a lot about brazil you'll see me talking a lot about race and class uh you'll see me talking a lot about foreign policy as well just because of my own work and my own you know my my relationship with my husband who's also foreign there's a lot of stuff that kind of colors my analysis on foreign policy so if you're interested in foreign policy and stuff and international issues, you should also follow me for that. Um, but I also have a podcast called the Left Pocket Project Podcast. And the, on the podcast, I talk about um, the histories of leftists of color. So I try to really make this history of movements that are led by and comprised of people of color that are on the left um, to make that that information more readily available to the public. So you can find that information uh, by going to left POC. That's L E F T P O C. And speaking of left POC, we actually have a, a podcast coming out. We're doing, uh, we're still doing reading revolution, which is a series where my co-host Richard and I will read a book or uh, an article written for or about uh, people of color on the left. And so this, this month we've, we're doing a three part series on Paulo Freire's pedagogy of the oppressed which for those of you who don't know, he was a Brazilian leftist um, educator who actually did a lot of work in Africa and throughout Latin America too. Um, And his theory was basically one of literacy, but also one um, of ways to think about education and life uh, through a more left-leaning lens and one that was anti-colonial and anti-racist, anti... There's a lot. It's just a lot. It's amazing. You should listen in. It has three parts. So that'll be coming out soon. And uh, yeah, that's what's going on. So thank you so much. 
Thank you. You guys, this has been another edition of The Way of Fanoa. I'm super excited, again, to have had this conversation with Miss Wendy. And no, my intro was not overly generous because Wendy really is that <laughs> And, and I mean, seriously, guys, like there are those of us who are out here having conversations in addition to the work we're doing in our day to day lives, because we really, truly believe in, in good dialogue and uplifting the conversation and really helping everyone think about these issues more critically. So hopefully folks have gotten something from us, our conversation today, definitely go check out Wendy's work. Because uh, that's one of where I go to to learn more about, you know, the international scene. Um, there's several other folks who are good to follow on foreign policy as well. So thank you so much again, Wendy. Appreciate you. Thank you.